invite other friends to join. Oh, okay. Hi, how are you? Sorry. Hi. Putting up the topics. I hope, you know, if I if I don't talk much for a few minutes, it's because I'm I'm putting up the the slides and everything. But welcome and thank you for coming. Definitely. Thank so we, you. We, were, we are talking to each other through Zoom, which is why this echoing before we sent you the slides. So I think we ought to probably log out. We'll be we'll be back, Karina. Yeah, it's not too bad. I mean, yeah, it's it's not horrible. So it's good. And did you we sent the slide set? Um did you get that? We yeah. realized that we didn't put the numbers in there, so I sent you one with the numbers. Oh, perfect. Yeah, um, if you can, ch please check if you can access it. And okay. Yeah. But uh, okay, that's great. And now let me add your in the chat. I usually share uh, lab websites uh, so people can you know check out more. I think this one is the one that doesn't have the slide numbers on it. I think I sent you a second email, but I was about 10 minutes ago. Is it too late to update the? Oh, no, PPM? no, it's not. Okay. Oh, you did. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It should say edited with it. Okay, no problem. I will. Thank just, you. It just takes a couple of minutes, but we have a. That's why. Why we yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, it's uploading, so we'll be there in a couple of minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. Hi, quick question. Maybe you could incorporate that. In, when you say Africans, are you referring to uh, West and Southern Africa, or that include North African? Because North African history, actually, in America, is very long. Napoleon brought many uh, from Egypt to Morocco to fight with him in Louisiana, and so is the Spanish-American warfare. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, and they were many, but those are fair skin. Most of them are fair skin, blue eyes, um, Mediterranean. Uh, yeah. Most of, so most of our results are indicating West and West Central Africa, more on the African coast. Yeah, North Africa has an extremely complex and, and rich history, but uh, for this study, we're focusing mostly on, on along the, the West African coast. No, no, that's good to know. I was just trying because the word African is 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 is. Uh, bit too broad yes. yeah i'm sorry we have very limited characters number for the title and that's it's always really tricky to make a title that is accurate enough but then still fits into the limitation so no no perfectly fine i was just curious uh, because that's an interesting topic that's all thank you yeah thank you and we will start in a couple of minutes, so yeah, stay, stay around to ask more questions. It's always more interesting when people participate.
<laughs> yes. Okay, I shared the, the lab websites. The new uh, file should be up. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, now I'll share on Twitter that we're really starting now. And Tad, then... do you, um, Tad, do you know you're on mute just in case? So this is not the right slide set. I made modifications to the titles and colors and things of this. This does not have numbers on it either. The edited version? This does not have the, this is not the version that I sent back to you, Raquel, that we've worked with. It has all number of things that are in different colors and other things that I had, we'd worked on. Okay. Um, one second, Kareen. I might've accidentally saved the wrong slide set. Let me check. Oh yeah, don't worry. We we still have a few minutes. I mean, it's more. <laughs> no, I I didn't. I'm not in a time like I'm not oh. in a rush. So. <laughs> yes, I that was my fat. Let me, Katarina. Let me send you the updated. I had two versions of this open, and then I edited <laughs> the wrong one. So let me quickly just do this really fast. Yep. No worries. And thank you, Theodore, for, for noticing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, we both spent a lot of time making these kinds of slides and going back and forth and editing them. So we, we're pretty familiar with the, the details. And Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to do this for, for this presentation. I know it's, you know, you have a lot of other things to do. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. Okay, the updated one should now be sending to you. I'll get it and, yep. Now, there it is. Yeah, Wait. okay, that one, that one has the... Thank you for catching that, Tad. I had two versions of the slide set open and I accidentally didn't even notice I was editing on the wrong one. Yeah, and in the meantime, everyone in the audience, feel free to check out the lab website and also the paper. Um, I shared it and um, so, you know, and also if you have questions, um, please, or comments that you want to get to address, please either send them to me, put them up in the chat or um, yeah, or just raise your hand and participate in the discussion. And uh, we will start in, in a minute uh, when the, the slides are uploaded. And uh, yeah, it's an honor having you, Raquel, and Theodore here. Thank you so much for taking the time again. And for, you know, I know it's a hustle like to make that count and uh, all of that. So, so what was, let me just see what was edited the title now, because now I have a bunch of, <laughs> I know it should be under edited, uh, two. <laughs> okay. It didn't upload. Uh, I uploaded it maybe somewhere weird. Yeah. Now I have it and I will, 
Okay, now I can I can pin the link. Thank you. And thanks so much for having us today. This is a really great app. It's really exciting. Yeah, I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, now we are all set and I know people will continue coming in, but let's start with introductions and then uh, we'll go from there. So welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you, uh, Raquel and Theodore. And uh, before we start, let me give just a short introduction and then we go um, continue the introduction with like a short interview before we then dive into your really interesting research. So um, uh, Professor Theodore, um, he is a professor of anthropology in the Department of um, of anthropology and he is also a consulting curator, curator in the um, University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology and he's the director of the Laboratory of Molecular Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania and he has been um, researching um, the genetic um, prehistory of Asia and the Americans um, for 30 years and um, yeah his his current projects also include studies of genetic diversity in the indigenous population of Canada the United States Mexico and the Caribbean and um, and also um, his group also um, looks at population history of Georgia Pakistan Kazakhstan um, and others um, he did his bachelor at the University of Georgia and his master's at Emory University and then later also his PhD at the Emory University. And then um, uh, Dr. Raquel Fleskes, she's at the National Science Foundation, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Connecticut in the Department of Anthropology. I also shared her website in the chat um, and um, she is an anthropological geneticist um, where, and her research falls at the intersection of ancient DNA, archaeology and community engagement, which I think is really interesting um, that you have this uh, intersection and um, to understand the population history of colonial period in North America. So yeah, welcome to both of you. It's really an honor. And um, to we usually start by asking, so if you can look back at your life, if you remember, uh, what drove you to become a scientist and to, this, to do this type of investigations? Um, was it maybe something in your childhood? Was it a childhood dream or was something that sparked your interest later on? Thank you so much. Who would you like to start oh, first? Uh, both, like Theodore, since I introduced you first. <laughs> okay. So I suppose uh, I had a, a bit of a leg up on getting involved in scientific and work and biological research because we because my father was a biologist and so 
I think I first got intrigued by science by reading his books and books on evolution and, you know, details of dinosaur history and phylogeny and so forth. So for me, that was probably, you know, eight or nine years old, being aware of this broader, diverse world and and also the all the, you know, the wonderful illustrations in the textbooks of of, uh, you know, anatomy and, and, and diatoms and, and things of this kind, which were just, uh, you know, stimulated the imagination for the way that trilobites, the way the world was, was created so long ago and, and, you know, the way that it now looks today. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting that your father was a great inspiration and um, that that is uh, really nice to hear because sometimes it can also do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. but, but that's that's really nice to hear and encouraging for all of us that have children <laughs> that they won't be repelled, but rather attracted to the subject. So that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. And Raquel, please go ahead. Um, I uh, wanted to know. I I wanted to be an anthropologist when I was 16 years old. I had read uh, Anthropology for Dummies, which is the bright yellow book. Um, and I didn't know how it was going to work. And my mother was very worried. <laughs> she told me to major in business too. Um, but I was really interested in thinking about how we can apply methods in genetics as another way of thinking about our past. And so when I joined to work with Dr. Theodore Shore at the University of Pennsylvania for my PhD. He really encouraged me to uh, think about learning how to do work in ancient DNA and then applying it to the study of uh, the colonial past. So I grew up in Maryland and Virginia, and so I started off first doing projects in that local area, and that eventually led to work with the Anson Street African Burial Ground Project. And I think our background as anthropologists really um, allows us to integrate community perspectives, oral histories, archaeology, as well as uh, as the hard hard science, so to speak. Um, and so we're really excited to be here today to kind of talk to you about this work that we've been doing. I think right about seven or eight years now, Tad. Yes. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful that you. Um went ahead and, and went with your passion anyways. Um, it's so interesting to me that I feel like, you know, it's so culturally different than in Europe and many countries going into science is kind of prestigious and parents are very happy if you do that. But I heard from various colleagues that people, parents usually ask, oh, when you are you done with your science thingy and start making money? <laughs> <laughs> that's, when are that's you out of school? Yeah, exactly. When are you? When are you going to the real world? It's really and and uh, thank you so much for staying in that field and doing that work. So, uh, which gives us this opportunity to talk about this work. So, thank you. And then, if I don't know if there is maybe an interesting backstory how this specific project came about. Was it really hard also to get the collaboration? Was it easy also to get grants for this project? If you if you could share some insight with us, I think that would be really interesting. Thank you. I, I think that those kinds of, of aspects of the project will, will come forward as we as we go through this slide set and 
and explain how the project started and who's involved and what it took to to carry out the work that we're going to describe here and are continuing to, to work through at the very moment. Wonderful. So that's the perfect transition. Everyone, please access the slides uh, through the link we pinned on top of the room. And um, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Okay, so um, uh, Dr. Fleskus and I have divided this talk, at least in trying to cover some parts of it, but we may jump in and echo various points or add details to each other's comments along the way. Um, this, this project for us, um, the, the project, um, I, I'm not going to, uh, I'll get to a few points uh, about its actual start, but, but she, uh, she and I have been involved in this project now for a little bit over five years, although the project was actually going on before that time. And, and uh, so this represents what we're talking about now is an overview of, of the, that work and also reflections on how all of this got started in the first place. So in the second slide, you see the, the, the outline of this presentation that we're going to follow, including talking about you know, its history, which we've just been referencing, who was involved with this, um, how, you know, what we do as part of this project, um, the, uh, the ancient DNA work itself, which is at the central portion of the research that we're publishing and Dr. Fleskus's lead, uh, we'll talk a bit about some work that we have in motion now, which works with a different kind of DNA from dental calculus, and then talk about that, where, where things are going at this point, and then make some acknowledgments, including funders, uh, which you, you asked about. So this project, um, the current group that's, uh, that's here today that is working on all these details, the ASAGWA project, which stands for the African, uh, what is it, uh, the Ancestry African Burial Ground, the acronym include uh, the names you see here, Joanna Gilmore, um, Lachey Obrey, Mishu, uh, Raquel, and, and myself. And we'll, we'll mention some other folks who've been involved along the way, including the, uh, the person who's, who led the, the, the project from its very inception, Dr. Adeo Funyan, in just a moment. But collectively, all, all of our team and others who have been involved in different parts of the analysis, you'll see in the, in the fourth slide, which is the central questions that we were asking and also which the community was interested in asking or learning about, which is, you know, what are the contributions made by enslaved Africans and their descendants to the fabric of life in Charleston? You know, what did they, how did they help Charleston actually be built and constructed literally and, and figuratively since their participation in this, in, in the, in Charleston's history has been largely obscured in, in, in many ways and which remains somewhat fragmentary such that work like this becomes necessary to tell stories about the people who's of African descent who were brought to Charleston and then whose, whose, ans whose descendants uh, uh, lived um, beyond that time. So the, the sixth slide is of Dr. Shows Dr. Adeo Funyan, who was, uh, um, as you can see, he's, um, uh, you see the details about here. He, he began this work actually by um, mapping his own family graveyard and realizing that in fact, many, many graveyards and family graveyards were not actually documented. And so he developed the Gullah Society in, in large part to try and, and do that work and map burials across the, all of the Charleston Peninsula and surrounding areas to help tell the story of African-Americans to a greater extent. This involved a significant amount of engagement with community and, and uh, at this time, and, uh, and also um, working with others to help map graveyards uh, as well as uh, creating this kind of a database that we were, were beginning to, to use for this work. But 
that was all in, in motion. Uh, he, that was started in somewhere around, I think, 2015. But what really prompted Dr. Afunian to, to get us all involved in this project was the, the next slide, which is about the discovery of the Ant Street burial ground. This was discovered accidentally um, when the, the Gilliard Center in downtown Charleston was being expanded uh, to encompass more space for public events and cultural events and so forth. And the human remains were found at that particular location, uh, 36 individuals and 36 burials. And then they needed, they were uh, uh, removed at that time and, 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 and put into uh, safekeeping at a, at a cultural research management firm, and then later analyzed by um, uh, osteologists and to, to begin uh, trying to figure out who these persons were. And part of this story involves that ask, uh, answering that very question, who they are. So, uh, and then um, what, uh, and I think it was in 2000 and maybe 17 that Dr. Ofunian and the Gullah Society were asked to become part of the process of reinterring these remains because they were determined likely to be of persons of African descent of, of putative uh, uh, enslaved uh, status. So that got things rolling in terms of, of that plan for the reinterment, but also community conversations that we've been involved with at the next slide, both with, uh, before our involvement and also later when we became involved, which is to you know, ask the community what they wanted to have done with the remains of the ancestors, as we call them, and then, uh, and then what kind of research into their ancestry and history and personhood that they wanted to engage with. And they were enthusiastic about using all available types of scientific means of assessing their, their history and ancestry. But each along the way, we, we had various conversations with them about what we wanted to do, what our results were. Um, we worked with community members to do their own DNA testing to find possible connections to the ancestors whose DNA we also studied. And Dr. Fleskus will detail in, 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 in uh, quite a bit of length. And you can see that the next slide actually shows the way in which we engaged in, in this DNA work with both living and, and, uh, and also uh, you know the, the ancestors themselves and the people that we got involved with, uh, that we involved in, in, in training, um, and, and including Adiemi Odoole, who you see on the far uh, right of this slide uh, under under Raquel's tutelage. And so each step of the way, and much of the information that you see um, in the subsequent slides, um, we presented in person, as you can see Raquel and I, uh, the DNA research updates slide, um, going through the details, both what we find for the ancestors and also for the persons who, whose DNA we tested uh, in Charleston. We also, in the next slide, you see we elicited feedback on each step along the way about this process, what they learned, what they'd want to learn, directing us perhaps our attention to certain things they wanted further and analyzed. And this was enormously productive relationship and process for us to be able to, to guide this work going forward. The work we've done, especially based on the initial DNA evidence, but also other things learned about the ancestors led also in preparation for the reburial, um, uh, a whole variety of artistic responses to, to the ancestors and to African American ancestry and heritage, which you can see then in the artist workshop and the community art exhibits in Charleston slides. Quite an extraordinary response, both at the sort of the adult level and then also at, at the level of middle school and high schools. And all this work you see represents that, that kind of response. The next one with the tree actually I think also involves the uh, um, senior citizens actually using indigo batik uh, to make this tree of tree of life in essence that, that um, it represents you know African heritage and its deeper roots in Africa. The next slide which is on uh, let's see here is about the memory of creating a memorial 
and there's more that we can say about this and maybe Raquel, I can talk about what was started and maybe you can add towards the end what, what, what actually is in motion, if that's okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so um, so the memory, so the basic idea was that we were in the process of analyzing the remains and, and planning for the reburial and trying to figure out how best to honor them with a permanent memorial. So there were some initial steps done at the College of Charleston with students who were inspired by the work and who wanted to actually come up with an idea for, for recognizing the ancestors, these 36 persons, who nothing much was known about before the discovery because there was no reckoning of their identity in any kind of historical records. And so this was the start of the process in 2018 for us to figure out how to actually build something that would acknowledge their, their personhood and their, their importance for Charleston. Uh, we also consulted with uh, a, a, a well-known um, uh, architect and uh, designer about this and, and consulted about how to, to build this memorial and we've got feedback from community members about what that might look like. We also were able to do uh, create, uh, based on the initial data, data we had, archaeological, historical, and genetic, we began to make profiles of all the ancestors based on the data that we have. And so the, the restoring personhood changing narrative slide shows at least a few of those kinds of poster sized representations of persons, at least as we could best begin to summarize what we know in, in some sense uh, at that point. So the key points, at least at this time then, is that the project, had, we, we made a significant uh, effort to expand knowledge about African ancestors in, uh, in, in Charleston, about whom not much, not much was known. We began this memorialization process um, and also plans to rebury. And also we were able to do this kind of work, which had, um, you know, this bioarchaeological work, which was socially engaged and designed specifically to counter sort of racist perspectives on, on African heritage and history and actually give uh, give uh, um, basically greater personhood and, and, and recognition of the ancestors whose remains that we were, are being permitted to, to analyze. So I'll turn things over to, to Dr. Fleskus now. Thank you, Dr. Schur. Yeah, so with this, you know, wonderful introduction that uh, that Tad has given about this project, you can really see the depth of of the community engagement aspects of this project. So when we published our paper in PNAS, we talk a little bit about the community engagement, but we always think that it's really important to kind of try to tell this whole story because as long as well as doing the science and the ancient DNA, which we're going to talk about in, in a couple of minutes, um, this we have just done a lot, a lot of work, a lot of conversations with people on the ground about what this work means to them. And I think that this is one of the stronger parts of this project and what we hope that other researchers will, you know, can, can use this as a model or an example for how they can incorporate community perspectives in their own research. So if we move to slide 18, so emblematic of that is uh, doing, we incorporated a, near the time of the reburial of the remains. So at, before we took DNA samples, we transported them to University of Tennessee at Knoxville. The idea was always to rebury these ancestors. Um, and when we got closer to the date of reburial on May 4th, 2019, we held a number of ceremonies to honor uh, these individuals and to continue to do acts that restore personhood. So the first one is a renaming ceremony. When our education and outreach director, Lachey Oubre, was doing educational outreach programs in a local North Charleston high school, one of the students asked her, do they have any names? And, you know, we really thought a lot about that. And, you know, it is really important. We don't know the names of these individuals. They were recovered with burial numbers. So we were referring to them as CHSO1 or, or 2 or 05. 
we felt that it was very important to make sure that they were returned to the ground with names and not just burial numbers. So we held a naming ceremony at McLeod Plantation Historical Site. Um, Dr. Adiofunian, shown here in blue, is a Yoruba priest, and he brought with him two colleagues, Dr. Natalie Washington-Wyke and Dr. Terrence Wyke, who are also Yoruba priests, to conduct a naming ceremony where um, libations were poured, uh, the five flavors of life were given to Mother Earth to mimic how a mother will taste the five flavors of life for a child. The um, Natalie Washington Wyke and Terrence Wyke also created names that integrated uh, the osteological genetic findings on sex and ancestry with um, spiritual guidance and names sourced from Lorenzo Dow Turner's uh, Africanisms of the, of, of the African dialect. So in the future, when we're talking about these ancestors, we are going to be using names, but just know that these are honorific names. So if we go to the next slide, you know, so on May 4th, uh, 2019, these individuals were reinterred. And this was a, a huge community event. I think we had about 500 people in attendance. It was really wonderful. Um, the ancestors were wrapped in indigo shrouds. You can see here in the horse-drawn hearse, shown in black. And these are six of the ancestors, two men, two women, and two children. And you can see their, their caskets wrapped, and they have these beautiful indigo shrouds that were made by local artisans. Um, they were processed to the reburial uh, site with an Ngungun masquerade, as well with a number of cultural and spiritual leaders. Um, you can see here on the next slide, again, that horse-drawn hearse right down King Street. Um, Again, we had about 500 estimated people in attendance, people from the College of Charleston, from local communities. Um, the Charleston mayor came to the site as well as city council members. So in the second photograph, you can see the big building in the back is the Charleston Gilliard Center, which is the auditorium. And that big oak tree that's to the left, um, that's where the ancestors were reburied right next to that oak tree. So we had everybody kind of coming and surrounding around and, and being part of this really important moment in historic Charleston. Um, we then carried six of the ancestors from the, his, from the hearse, and you can see here with Adia Funian and uh, Feldings Funeral Homes, uh, carrying each one of these ancestors into the final burial vault, which you can show here. Um, and before the ancestors were reburied, so you can see on slide 24, I think it's numbered, um, Dr. Adiaponian is placing messages to the ancestors. So we asked community members to write notes about what this meant to them, what they wanted to tell the ancestors, and these notes were also buried with their ancestral remains. Uh, we had a multi-faith uh, spiritual ceremony, including uh, Keepers of the Word, which is a Native American uh, organization in, in the Low County as well as uh, Muslim faith spiritual leaders, uh, Christian spiritual leaders, and as well as uh, African spiritual leaders from the, and I'm blanking on the name. Uh, Ted, do you remember what the name of the- Yeah, I'm drawing a blank on it also. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. sorry, but uh, a lot of really wonderful people were here in attendance yes. and you can see in on slide 26, we had uh, the wonderful Children of Watoto Academy gave dance performances, and it was really an act of celebration with drumming and music and, and life. And that was really kind of what this whole narrative of this project is, is, is again, restoring life, restoring personhood, and keeping the memory of these individuals alive, but then also discussing and, and bringing to light the important history and legacy of African descended persons in Charleston. 
So then this kind of brings us to the burial grounds ethical research design on slide 27. So we really, when we were setting up this project, and now you've seen a lot of the components, the, the engagement components, but they're really all centered around this philosophy of community-based archaeogenomics, which focuses on humanizing skeletal remains. So they're not regarded as objects of study, but rather people. Um, centering personhood in the study of these remains. So we're talking a lot about individual histories rather than population to again draw centering to this humanizing element. Also decolonizing knowledge production. So, you know, even though we are talking about this now, a lot of the knowledge that was generated is generated from local community members um, and making sure that they are the ones that are in charge of the telling of their own histories. Um, then also centering descendant communities as the primary stakeholders in this work. So, you know, the questions that we had from the community were the primary driving questions, and we'll talk about that on the next slide. And then also important in that is interrogating our own positionality. So Dr. Schur and myself come from outside of the Charleston community. We are also white researchers. So it's really important for us to be critically examining what our own uh, associations are and then how we can be actively uh, inclusive towards other perspectives and make sure that it's not, it's about the community itself. So kind of this drove uh, the kind of our first initial meetings with the community were centered around understanding what their questions and priorities were. So we gathered a lot of questions that community members were interested in, organ in answering. So on slide 28, you can see some of these questions listed out. They wanted to know, were these individuals buried with care? What is their ancestry? Are they related to each other? What was their life quality? How did they live? And so really in order to answer all of these questions, we really needed to build a multi-method framework. So we integrated ancient DNA, of course, which is where Dr. Schur and myself come in, but also archeology, span archival work, osteology, and stable isotopes. And so really it's through the amazing collaboration by all these persons that are listed here, Dr. Eric Poplin, who is the head archeologist on site, and Dr. Susan Abel and Dr. Wolf Bookshin and Dr. Chelsea Juarez, uh, really were so committed to collaborating to do this multifaceted uh, study that we were able to answer these questions with the depth that we were able to. And, so I think, you know, as again, as anthropologists, there's a really a strength when we're learning from so many different perspectives, so many, uh, different uh, ways of looking back into the past. So what we're going to do for this next section of this talk is kind of go through what each of these uh, forms of evidence or these ways of knowing told us and what we learned about the ancestry ancestors. So on slide 29, we're going to talk a little bit about the archaeological findings. So there were about 37 burials, 36 that contained human remains that, human, that uh, Dr. Shore mentioned. They're organized into roughly four equally spaced rows. You can see here's a site burial map to the right. You can see they have that kind of four hors uh, vertical row quality. So this suggests that they were buried over time and that they knew the position of the burial before it as they were being interred. Um, we also, the archaeologists also recovered a number of artifacts associated with some of the burials. So for instance, a George III copper halfpenny was recovered from burial 27. This is Walela. Walela is a five to six year old child and two copper halfpennies were recovered. So one on each of her eye orbits. So this is an act of care um, during a burial rite where folks would place eyes, uh, coins upon the eyes. Um, as a way to, to mourn the dead. 
We also find things like glass beads. So for instance, Omo, who was an infant at the time that she is, is buried, um, has these glass beads that would be for a hair ornament. So again, this is an, an artifact that represents care and adornment by somebody who loved them. So we really, again, we wanna think about how care is, is being kind of translated through the archeological record here. We also know the date range for this burial ground is approximately 1760 to, to, to 1790 AD. And we know that based on, again, this, the, copper co the copper coin is a really big uh, date for us because it says 1773 on it. But then also we know based on the pottery shards that are found in the burials as well, kind of gives us that date range. Um, the archival evidence also helps us kind of give an end date to the burial ground. We know that the Ancestry African burial ground, if you see on the first image here, uh, is on the kind of northernmost, well, it's in the peninsula of Charleston, kind of in the middle. Here you can see by this red dot. But in historic Char Charleston around 1790, the Ancestry African burial ground is really on the most northernmost part of the city's boundary. So the white speck in the middle panel represents the modern day, the burial ground that was excavated. You can see it's right up against this north boundary street and everything north of that is all farmland. So this is actually, you know, relatively far away from the main city center. And we know that in around 1798 that the land the ancestry, uh, ancestors were buried on was subdivided and sold. So we likely think that the burials probably likely stopped around that point because then they were given as private property to different landowners. We also know that the land the ancestors were buried on, it was land of a, a white landowning individual in kind of this northernmost area. We know that the population of free people of color, so individuals that are of African descent who are not uh, under enslavement, were likely buried on the opposite part of the city in the east. Um, so we don't know of any known burial grounds in this area. And then we know that based again on the ownership of the land in the area, this suggests these individuals were likely of enslaved status. However, it's really important to point out that we have no documented evidence of this burial ground at all so we can only be inferring the status and without exactly direct documentation we don't know for sure i might add quickly here that this work on the mapping was significantly contributed by grant michu and nick butler um, of our group yes thank you for thank you for mentioning that um, and, you know, then going to slide 20, 31 with the osteology, this work is done by Dr. Wolf Bookshin and Dr. Susan Abel of the Charleston County Coroner's Office. So they um, uh, identified and assessed for age, osteological sex, and osteological ancestry. They uh, found approximately 28 adults and seven juveniles. Um, the, and I know that the coloring is not li fully labeled here, but uh, the juveniles in this map are circled in orange um, and the rest are uncircled for adults. And we've age range distribution goes from approximately six months to over 40 years of age. Um, they also estimated sex for 12 individuals with eight males identified that are circled here in blue and five females identified that are circled here in red. Um, and it's and most of the rest of the individuals are in, labeled as indeterminate just due to poor osteological preservation. They just were not very well preserved, unfortunately. 
So when we did genomic analysis, we were able to uh, also investigate chromosomal sex, and we found that 21 individuals were chromosomal males, and I think about five individuals, six individuals were chromosomal females, um, and the rest were indeterminate because we weren't able to get data from that. So again, it does skew a little bit more to males, but we do know women and children are also, uh, are also varied here. Um, ancestral estimations were determined to be likely of African ancestry based on the cranium. And again, this is something that we followed up with um, with the DNA results. The osteologists also looked at the dental health of these ancestors and found that most had very poor dental health. So we have a high presence of carious lesions, which are basically like cavities in the teeth, um, abscessed tooth. So that's when, you know, you have a really big carry and it's eaten up about half of your tooth. We also see a lot of generalized tooth loss, so a lot of teeth that have fallen out during the course of life, and then the, the hole where the root is has been healed over. Um, we see things like enamel hypoplasia, which is a line and indentation in the enamel that occurs during, during a period of acute stress, usually in childhood or in adulthood. We also see a lot of wear. So um, this is pretty emblematic of this time period. You know, you usually don't have good access to dental care. And one thing that's not pointed out here is uh, dental calculus was found on 14 of the ancestors. And Dr. Theodosher will also talk a little bit about our ongoing work with University of Oklahoma with dental calculus research to kind of, again, get at this lived history aspect of, um, of the ancestors. And if we go to the next slide on slide 33, um, we also conducted strontium isotopes on these individuals. This was conducted by Dr. Chelsea Juarez. Um, she collected uh, enamel samples and bone samples and then tested the strontium uptake of these. Strontium is a really great way of understanding uh, place of or place of childhood or birth, and then also of the la of residence in the last 10 years of life, which is with bone. Um, strontium uh, basically is a uh, geochemical signature that gets absorbed into the bone through the groundwater that you drink or the food that you're eating and is really reflective of that specific geo, uh, geological location or locale that you are living in. So we can compare for the ancestry ancestors their strontium isotopes to determine where they might have lived their early childhood or their adulthood. So you can see here in the first graph, encircled in red, we have about six individuals um, that have strontium enamel isotopes uh, overlapping with values in along the West African coast. So this indicates that because enamel, your enamel forms during your childhood, that these individuals were likely born in Africa and not born in the local Charleston or North, North American region as the strontium values are a little bit lower. But when you look at bone, the bone signatures, you can see really there's encircled in blue, there are only really two individuals that have higher strontium isotopic bone values, which indicates that they were recently brought over, forcibly transported from Africa, and then more recently passed away when they were when they reached Charleston. So most of these individuals were living most of their lives, or at least ten years of their life, if not longer, um, in the in uh, in the in the Americas. So this again gets us at these kind of life history questions. So slide 34, we begin to kind of move towards the ancient DNA. So in the context of understanding the strontium isotopes, the archaeology, the you know documentary and archival work, we situated our work with ancient DNA within that. So we were able to obtain whole genome 
uh, and, uh, whole genomic information for 31 individuals when 18 individuals had enough genomic information generated to do in-depth ancestry and relatedness estimations. We were able to obtain between 0.8 to 1.2x coverage. And I know if anybody is in here doing contemporary genomics, that looks super, super low, but that's actually okay for ancient DNA because we tend to get very uh, not great coverage in ancient DNA because our DNA is very fragmented and in a very low quantity. So anything really around you know 0.5x coverage is dictated to be pretty good. Um, we call, uh, called SNPs, um, or these single nucleotide polymorphisms, or these markers, against two different kinds of panels, uh, the human origins panel to assess continental ancestry, and then a custom African reference panel, which is assembled, assembled, for, assembled from the, uh, the literature to more specifically understand African ancestry. Um, our DNA was determined to be authentic. Our damage is characteristic of profiles for ancient DNA samples, around 4 to 15% damage, um, which is usually found at the ends of these DNA reads. And we also had relatively low contamination, so we're all good to go. And if anybody has any questions about how we get ancient DNA or how we characterize it, please let me know. We have to do this work in a full bunny suit, so you can see there's a picture of me um, in the full suit, in the full getup, in the specific ancient DNA lab doing this work. But we're gonna kind of you know, move a little faster, so we're just gonna hop right to the results. So slide 35 shows um, a diverse set of mitogenomes, so the mitochondrial DNA, um, as well as our, mito our Y chromosome haplogroups. So our mitochondrial DNA shows us the maternal history of an, of an individual, right? So your mitochondrial DNA is inherited directly from the mother, and so it is able to show us this direct maternal history. What we see with the Ancestry Ancestors is we have a majority of African-associated hap, uh, haplogroups, so lots of L types, a U5A, U6A5 type. This is also of African derivation. Um, and so this was very, you know, this is what we expected to find. However, one individual, Kusa, so she's kind of highlighted here in this green arrow, had an A2 mitochondrial haplotype. Um, this A2 haplotype is usually actually characteristics, uh, characteristic of North American populations. So this suggested that she may have indigenous North American ancestry um, in her autosomal DNA profile as well. So this was something we weren't exactly expecting and was kind of surprising. And and we also found an H100 haplotype in CHS22. This is Lisa. And if anybody here does mitochondrial DNA work, you're going to say H is, oh my gosh, that's a European haplogroup. Um, and so that was also a little bit of a, a, of a surprise for us. And we're going to talk actually about this history of this haplogroup in a little bit more detail at the little, in a couple of slides. But this form of H100 is actually a back, represents a, uh, a haplogroup that left Africa and then actually back migrated back into uh, Eastern and Western Africa. So it is actually of African derivation. Our Y chromosome haplogroups reflect again, a strong African ancestry, E1B1A, E2, and then a B2A. So again, this um, was something that we were uh, also expecting. It's very common in Bantu speaking populations in West Africa. On slide 36, we did find two individuals that shared the same mitochondrial DNA haplogroup, L3E2A, that was shared between EC and Walela. Remember, Walela was that uh, child with the coins placed upon her eyes. 
Um, so this can indicate that potentially there is a mother child relationship, um, a mother-daughter relationship here. However, unfortunately, we weren't able to get enough genomic DNA for Walela, so we couldn't verify this using autosomal ancestry, um, which was kind of a big bummer. And unfortunately, between the 18 individuals with uh, higher amounts of whole genome uh, data, we were not able to detect any autosomal relationships between them. So that means we weren't able to detect any, any parents and offspring or sisters and brothers between them. So what this indicates to us is that these individuals were interred likely uh, via time. So as one person passes away, the next person is interred instead of by biological family. Um, and so, again, this kind of changes our burial interpretation for the space and is hard to reflect upon because we don't see these biological kinships association. However, what we do see, again, are those acts of care by people who did enter these individuals through the archaeological evidence. So moving into the ancestral estimations, which is kind of the main point of our, our PNAS paper, um, we first did a PCA, a principal component analysis um, between, uh, shown here, against the human origins reference panel. Um, and what we find here is that most of the uh, individuals are labeled here in these light blue symbols. And so you can see them projected onto this PCA plot. Basically, a PCA plot is, just, is showing us the distribution of genetic variation between different reference populations. One dot equals one person, and each color represents one population. So you can kind of, by projecting where the ancient DNA individual is on this plot, you can kind of begin to infer uh, autosomal ancestry estimations. So again, this largely re reflected what we see in the mitochondrial and Y chromosome haplogroups, largely of African ancestry except for we have two individuals circled here in green and in red that are projecting a little bit slightly off from the rest of the individuals. And we're gonna talk a little bit about those two. So this one circled in green is Kusa. And again, remember she had an A2 mitochondrial DNA haplotype, which is of Native American, North American ancestry. And then uh, uh, Lisa, which is circled here in red, I remember she had that H100 haplotype that was a little bit unusual. So uh, next we did an admixture analysis. Um, this shown here is at K equals 11. Admixture basically allows us to look at population clusters. So we have our big reference panel and a specific number of population clusters that you tell the program. It will calculate based uh, for each individual what ancestral profile they have. So just remember each line represents one individual and then we've grouped them by continental. So you can kind of see European populations tend to have this big royal blue component versus African populations tend to have this nice light blue component. So what we did and we compared that data against the ancestry of ancestors, we found that majority of them again had this nice light blue, which indicates made African ancestry, which makes sense. However, one individual, Kusa, also has this light brown population cluster component. And when we look about where else is this light brown population uh, cluster, we can see here it's found in the Americas. Um, so this uh, reaffirms what we found with the mitochondrial DNA, which is a, a slight uh, part of her ancestral background, is of Native American ancestry. So next we ran a PCA plot, this is on slide 39, with just African populations. So here we are just showing West and West Central African ancestry. We have a bunch of other plots that for, for brevity's sake we're not going to uh, answer. 
uh, we're not going to show, but what we do see is that a, a wide distribution uh, a, across the first PC axis, and we have basically half of the Anson Street ancestors projecting with West Central African populations and half with West Central, uh, with, with just uh, Upper Gold Coast populations. So this indicates that these individuals have diverse African ancestries from across the Western coast of Africa and not from just one centralized location. Now, specifically, if you see in highlighted in green here, uh, or highlighted in blue, circled in blue, one person is projecting a little bit farther down with uh, populations in the Gambia. So this individual is Lisa, and we're gonna run a quickly run, talk through an admixture plot. So she had a very distinctive uh, PCR uh, projection and also had a very distinctive admixture plot. So we ran, uh, again, here's the Lisa's, has a very like, lime green profile. And gosh, I'm sorry because I didn't realize that I had animations on this one, so you can't see. But if you look at that first population, Gambia, and you look all the way to the left, there's going to be a very light green ancestral profile. And if we zoomed up on just Gambian populations, you would see that ancestral profile fits with Fula Fulani populations, which is really exciting. They have a very distinct uh, genetic uh, uh, admixture component. And then on slide 41, we actually see that our mitochondrial DNA actually confirms this connection to the Fulani. So her H100 haplogroup is also classified as an H1C1B1A haplogroup in the literature. And when we do a reduced meaning and joining network against this compared to other uh, samples from the Gambia, from uh, uh, Burkina Faso, we see that their, her haplogroup most closely associates with those found in Fulani individuals from Niger, Guinea, and Burkina Faso. So again, we see from multiple different lines of evidence, her connection. So now I'm gonna turn this over to Tad. I'm sorry if I talked a little long. <laughs> okay, well, well, thank you, uh, Raquel, um, Dr. Fleskis. Uh, I'm gonna turn attention now to some ongoing work and some future directions. Although I also, uh, and, and talk a little bit about, uh, at least touch on a, a couple of points about the DNA work that, Ra that Raquel has mentioned. So she also had indicated that in addition to doing a basic osteological examine of the dentition uh, of the ancestors, we were also able to successfully retrieve dental calculus or, or essentially ossified plaque from the teeth of 14 individuals and then use them to extract DNA from the calculus to look at bacterial compositions of the microbiome of the mouth, the oral microbiome. And so what you can see in the, in the slide following that, um, I guess, what is that, 40, 41? And I can't tell what number that is. But um, anyway, you can see that part of what gets trapped in the mouth are both food particles of various kinds, proteins and byproducts of the foods, but also the oral bacteria and potentially viruses or other microorganisms, which then are reflective of the of the oral oral environment for the individual whose or dental plaque that we're analyzing, and we're most interested, as you can see in the next slide, just in a very simple car cartoon of the, the 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 bacterial flora, the various species of micro uh, bacteria, which tend to be linked to the kind of foods that we eat and the relative number of oral pathogens that we might have in our mouth because of cavities or periodontal disease or other things like that. The slide following that shows, that, at least in a schematic way, a whole variety of things that may be indicated by studying the oral microbiome of living persons and presumably also, though, of past populations. You know, certain kinds of taxa or species that may be a higher or lower for cancers or ulcers. Some may be a higher for in the upper right quadrant. You can see that periodontal disease may be linked to Provotella. 
uh, and uh, on the far, you know, oral cancers on the far, far left, and possibly other things related to more complex diseases uh, with regard to other species. So we are interested in knowing what kinds of bacteria were in the in the mouths, literally, of, of the ancestors at the time of their death, and what that might say about the food they ate, their dietary health broadly, oral health, and maybe other any kind of oral diseases they might be predisposed to or, or having, or, or the risk factors that they gave to them that might have something to do with their cause of death. The next slide shows you the laboratory and the group we work with to carry out this work, the University of Oklahoma which is specialized in ancient DNA work with microbiome and uh, in dental calculus of variety of species and all or person, or populations and also uh, different human populations today. The team the photograph shows all those persons who are involved in, in this component of the work and the collaborative team that we're using for the studying with the dental calculus analysis. The next slides show you again people in bunny suits. Uh, including Dr. Fleskis and I, and also Sarah Johnson, who's a doctoral student there working with us on this project. And the next two slides show uh, 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 Raquel actually doing the processing, beginning work. Actually, maybe was it library preps, or I think at that stage with the DNA, beginning to prepare those, the DNA for actual sequence analysis. Mm -hmm. So the dental calculus results are the next series of slides. Uh, uh, we, as it shows there that we were able to successfully retrieve uh, dental calculus of 14 ancestors and then successfully extract DNA to, for analysis from 12 of those 14 persons. Once we did the, the whole genomic shotgun sequencing for the metagenome and the bacterial sequences, we were able to successfully do so, at least in ways we think of allow us to do further analysis of 11 of those 12 persons. The source tractor profile in the next slide shows you pie charts. And what this essentially is showing you is because the, the, the the metagenome or the, the, the DNA that you sequenced it may be bacterial in, in, in terms of its overall makeup, but not all of it is necessarily coming from the oral microbiome. Some maybe come from soil bacteria, other sources, because we're taking them from persons who were interred and buried, and they may actually have accumulated those kinds of, of bacterial types in, in the process of, of diagenesis and also, in the, the pro, and also being uh, dis, disinterred from the graves where we found them. So the purple here is the important part of it because it shows the proportion of bacterial types that we think are going to give us are actually probably authentic to the to the ancestors themselves and will allow us to go forward with various sort of sequence analyses. In fact, that is the case because you can see on the next slide, the oral bacterium pathogen slide, this is a heat map showing you some number of ancestors, I think, along the bottom indicated and then the, the number of bacterial species shown on the on the on the vertical axis. And the heat map simply indicates the relative types of attacks or number of species of bacteria or, or you know, genera of bacteria that are present in the mouths of, of the ancestors um, that we, we think are going to be important for telling the story about oral history and, and possibly, you know, periodontis and, and periodontitis and things of this, this kind. The next slide shows you how many species we've mapped and uh, using metaflan and other techniques to try to characterize them at a more of a species level. The main point here is that these seem to be high enough, highly enough represented and having specific sort of metabolic functions that we're going to focus our attention on the phylogenetic analysis of these species to, to figure out what, what they might do, what might they look like in the ancestors, and then compare those sequences to those coming from living persons to see how, how bacterial species belonging to these taxa actually have evolved over several centuries of time. But we believe these are going to be key species for telling us something about Again, periodontal disease, oral health, things of the sort that will be uh, maybe even give us clues as again to the life ways and possibly maybe some broad insights into cause of death. 
in any case, um, and, and if you want to add something here, uh, Raquel, you can, or you. No, I think you did a really great job. Okay, excellent. So then, so what we're doing then, just as, as an overview, again, what we're doing is identifying dental species and looking for novel types in the role in health and disease and thinking about how this relates to periodontal disease. So they're important because this is actually some of the first dental calculus study to be done for individual archaeological populations from the colonial era in North America, and certainly that for African descended populations. And furthermore, this may actually tell us something about the generalizable maybe trends for colonial African populations or enslaved African persons just based on the diets they had or possibly differences between those individuals living in more urban versus rural rural contexts. But this is all at this point somewhat speculative, but we have hoped to be able to do something more along those lines. And again, the basic questions that these data will, will outline, these key questions, you can see how, how they're all here. And, and these are also questions in some general sense that the communities we were working with actually wanted to know more about. How did they live? What did they eat? What was their life like? And then how did they die? And in various ways, we hope that the, both the DNA evidence, but especially the dental calculus data, will tell us those kinds of things. So the work in progress, and I think here also, Raquel, will add a few points. You know, where again, we, we, we published work on uh, genomic evidence data from the ancestors, and now the next steps are to actually compare those data to the data from living Charlestonians, African-Americans who are participating in this project, and actually more broadly with Gullah Geechee communities across the low country of South Carolina. Uh, and also we're, we're doing extensive uh, education and outreach efforts uh, to help bring some of this information to public schools, to pu with public lectures and, and things of this kind, and more broadly with also with these publications and with our ongoing community, community presentations in Charleston to raise awareness of this African burial grounds in the Charleston area and, and the importance of acknowledging the existence of these folks their importance to the history of Charleston and, and recognizing them as persons who, who otherwise are, are, are basically unknown and unacknowledged in, in history. So would you like to add anything beyond uh, that, uh, Raquel? Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Tad has summarized this really well. I think, you know, the, this work has a platform right now, and maybe tech, you can talk about this a little bit too, but we're more moving towards creating a permanent memorial on the burial site. So remember if you we're talking about the reinterment ceremony and where all those ancestors were reburied. And we had consultations with community members, the events leading up to their burial. Well, the Charleston uh, city has now sponsored a memorial with Stephen Haas, who is an, an artist from uh, North Carolina, who has done a number of really amazing work um, about the African diaspora. So we're they had events, I think it was last weekend or two weekends yes. ago, where they yep. cast hands of 36 community members representing each of the 36 individuals. These hands will then form around the diameter of a fountain um, and create a larger area of place for uh, you know, reflection and to bring community members in to do educational events to learn about the ancestry ancestors. So uh, this work is kind of an extension of how we do science with you know, again, with with community impact and with the effects of this work expand right, uh, I mean, much outside of, of the scientific realm. And and I and again, just to emphasize uh, the point that this all is being driven by community interest and their own, you know, us also bringing forward their stories about their families, not just those of the ancestors to, to allow us to, to see the, the, you know, have their take on on this history, which in various ways is, is untold, or at least not, not formally told, 
and uh, and for us also then to give visibility to them as, as important members of the community as well. And and, and speaking of that, um, uh, unless the Rarikal would like to add something else, uh, I would, uh, I'll, I'll pause for that, but I wanted to make sure we, we acknowledge Dr. Adia Funyan, who sadly uh, left us to join the ancestors a, a couple of, uh, actually now two and a half years ago, and who was the central figure in getting the Gullah Society off the ground, all this work we described st started, and whose memory we, we honor with everything that we do in terms of talking in presentations like this or publishing our work and so forth. His spirit lives on uh, with us in, in a significant way, and uh, we're enormously grateful for his uh, involving us in this project in the first place. Would you like to add anything to that general um, sentiment? Um, I think maybe I'll just close out with some acknowledgments. Uh, okay, fine. Know, this, mm -hmm. Yeah, this work would not really have been able to be possible without our collaborators that are listed, listed on these uh, this last screen. So, you know, Coastal Community Foundation, University of Tennessee, National Geographic, that we were able to obtain funding through this, as well as the College of Charleston and Gullah Society. And now our team is under the Ancestry African Buryogram Project. So we'll link the uh, maybe their, our website. It's asagba, A-S-A-B-G, project.com. And uh, if you want to kind of keep following our work and the, on the on, ever unfolding uh, uh, impacts of this research. And thank you very much for having yes. us here today. Thank you very much. We really much. appreciate being able to talk with you all. Well, thank you so much for presenting this wonderful work. And I already loved the paper um, because of all these different aspects um, that kind of guide uh, your research. But after listening to your presentation, I have to applaud you even more. And I see uh, comments in the chat about the excellent work you do. Uh, Dr. Olu, who comes here all the time. And he appreciates the strong scientific rigor integrated in the important cultural sensitivity. And um, Dr. O says, excellent work. I really appreciate the relationship you have with the community and so on. So um, it's really, I, I really am also really happy to hear that, um, that the renaming took place and that you first went into the communities and asked what questions you want to have answered. I think we should include that in research in general more. Um, and it's far too, even in medical research or clinical trials, you know, we imagine what people's problems are that we don't have personally, or what what answers or problems they want people want solved in different situations that we are not in. And most of the time we we spend our money and time on things that are really not close to people's problems and hearts. So I wanted to really emphasize that um, that you're doing that and that's wonderful. And I hope in moving forward, a lot of more, um, more research groups do that. So yeah, thank you for that, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I also really appreciate that you go into the schools um, and uh, that, you know, education in those communities um, are participating. Is also the scientific part being discussed, like how, you know, how DNA, like how it gets 
inherited and how you extract it. Is there something like that also going on? That would be really wonderful, but I know it's probably really hard to to have that in a school. I don't know. No, no. Yeah, you're hitting on some really great points. And unfortunately, we can't cover everything. But yeah, education, the education arm of this project was a very essential part of this work. So when this project was getting started, Dr. Shore and myself traveled down to Charleston almost every three or four months. And a lot of part, a lot of that time was spent going to local schools, elementary, middle school, high school, college level to talk about this work. And a lot of that is public science outreach, right? How when we're talking about ancient DNA, what is that? You know, it can be kind of complicated, but we really wanted to make sure that folks really fully understood how these processes were being taken, uh, carried out, uh, what was happening to these ancestral individuals in order to get the genomic data. And then it became a project around, you know, public science education and outreach and increasing visibility and transparency in science. We created, um, we brought a GoPro into the lab and filmed the process of doing ancient DNA in real time so that when we were next time back with the community, we could actually show them how the process was being carried out. And maybe Ted, if you want to talk a little bit more about this. Well, I would just amplify those few points, which I think are really important to take away from, from what we're doing as a means of, of actually giving opportunities for kids who, who normally don't get to learn about STEM-related research or archaeology or anthropology in their classrooms or even much about Black history to some extent, in the way, at least the way that we're approaching it from this project. And so our goal uh, you know, is in some broader sense to build capacity or to inspire young people to do this work, to feel like they can do it, to see what it's all about and to you know, attract their attention to new kinds of science that might might be engaged them going forward, as well as actually, I think, educating the teachers who are also teaching them about science and biology. So it is a very important part of, of what we try to do on a regular basis as part of this research project or this broader project. Yeah, I think that's so um, important and interesting. And by coincidence, I was talking yesterday with, um, with people from you know that invested for example here in clubhouse and, and other things that we were talking about science society and edu science education or communication and it was really interesting this um a lady um from iran said uh, we should we should bring um the science close to people's heart uh, and their everyday life um, relevance um, and that would basically bring people closer and have a different relationship with science and it's not something scary and you're doing exactly that so um, I think that's really important and really interesting and I hope people will be scared less of science and see it an enrichment of their personal world also through that so I think it's not just a contribution to the field and and people in Charleston is in general that approach is an enrichment of you know society with science the relationship I think yeah I think you know there's a lot of trust building that science has to do given a lot of inherited histories of the past of science maybe not looking out for folks best interests and so 
we really view it as our responsibility to make sure that folks really, they trust us. They know what's going to happen to these ancestral individuals, that we're not going to be reusing the data for purposes other than what they have specifically prescribed. Um, and in fact, all of the DNA samples and all the remaining bone material was reburied at the time of reinternment. So we're, you know, we're viewing any part of these ancestral individuals as being, you know, important and to, to as a part of that, of that one individual and also deserves to be put back into the ground. So uh, there's no disconnect. Yeah. And I wanted to read out one more question and then I wanted to give Joyce that came up here um to the stage an opportunity to speak i know we're the hour is up um the one question by alex Solan was uh, where can we find similar studies or is um in other parts of america like maryland and you know other states is something similar going on or are you planning to do something similar in other communities um well, right now, there's, I mean, our pro, uh, I think one, our project is, is the largest. I know I'm doing work right now in the Maryland, Virginia area. Um, we're doing a great project with the First African Baptist Church in Williamsburg, Virginia, which right now we're working on three ancestral individuals that are about 1820s. And then I have a, another site I'm working on in Delaware, which is a 1680s site, and three African-descendant individuals are being found there. But this is really very new work. Um, and so, you know, and it does take a lot of time because you have to be able to form all these community connections in order to, to really do this work um, ethically uh, with, with strong ethical foundations. So I hope that in the future that, you know, this work can expand. I mean, it's really exciting. Uh, and offers again another view, another view into history. Yeah, thank you. And um, Joyce, did you have a question? Welcome to the stage. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I wanted to also agree with Katarina. This is really great. It's so um, so respectfully done and integrating the cultural aspects. That's that's really wonderful. And um, also. I, I wanted to also um, agree with Katerina about including participants' perspectives, which I think is important um, in medical research as well. But also with regard to the dental work, um, I know that um, I read a study a while back where they were noting that, that when people started to, even before they were fully sedentary, when they were just um, part of the year staying in area and like, grinding up acorns or something, that's when they started to have the dental um, caries because they were changing the texture of the food and it was changing the, the microbes. And, and um, so I was wondering, are you comparing, I guess you maybe haven't done it quite yet, but is the dental caries situation worse in these samples than in like in Africa, where they may have come up with ways of keeping it in check by using like native plants or something to clean their teeth or, or things like that? Anyway, thanks. That's a great question. And thank you so much for, for your comments. Um, so we have not yet, so I, I'm not an expert in, in uh, you know, dental pathology by any means, but I do know that, um, you know, the ancestry ancestors did have, you know, pretty poor dental 
uh, dental health. And I think likely that's due to the types of foods that are being eaten. So, you know, things like rice and corn and all that is very starchy and sugary. And that translates to uh, a lot of buildup of dental plaque that can happen. So I don't know how, relatively how much that differs between other populations, let's say on the African continent or in different time periods. But I do know that, you know, especially in the colonial period, you do have a rise of, of very, very bad teeth just because you're eating a lot more of these starchy, uh, starchy substances and that and that can really erode the teeth very badly. So what we're trying to do is uh, also compare the specific if we have high enough coverage for genome reconstruction of certain one of these pathogens is to compare them with other pathogens that are found in de historic dental calculus samples or in contemporary dental calculus samples to see kind of the evolution of these specific microbes in the context of things like the agricultural transition or, you know, is there any kind of continental, you know, associations of, of you know, of where this microbe itself developed. So these little individual microbial histories in the context of kind of, again, these kind of the buildup of the dental plaque itself are something that we're really interested in pursuing. Yes, thank you. Hi, LT. Um, did you have a question? Yes, excellent talk. I really enjoyed it from beginning to the end. Um, my question has to do that uh, you mentioned that when you're doing the sequencing, because this is the ancient DNA, it's ancient, like old. Um, so use a clean lab. So my question has to do with, uh, is it like a how um, how commonly uh, you set up the, the let me change the question. It's been a long time since I've been in a lab. So, um, <laughs> meaning that, yes, <laughs> meaning that, um, do you have to do a special like a requirement, like a setting up and you have your own clean lab or you go to some other university, other sites, clean lab? How, how many such clean lab is in the US? I guess to be more specific, thank you. Thank you so much for your question. I love that you asked that because I felt when we were giving this talk, I was like, oh, we're skipping over all the cool stuff, which is talking about these clean lab setups. So um, there are probably about a dozen in the United States that have this type of setup. It's a um, it's kind of based on like a BSL-3 type of lab, except we're really trying, you know, we're not working with any pathogens here. We're just really trying to control the DNA from the researchers, not getting into the DNA sample of the ancestor. So we have to work in usually multi-chambered labs that are ISO 6 or 7 um, that have UV overhead UV uh, lights for, you know, uh, cross-linking any DNA that's present or found that's not in the sample itself, as well as positive pressured HEPA airflow. Um, we have to wear full PPE, gloves, masks, Tyvek suit, boot covers, shoe covers. Our hands must be routinely washed with 10% bleach and 70% ethanol. Everything has to get fully cleaned after every sample. So a lot of this is just a lot of labor and time to make sure that we're really, again, not mixing up the DNA between samples, but then also making sure that we're not getting the DNA of the researchers themselves into the DNA sample because, because the DNA from these ancestral individuals is so highly fragmented and in such low quantities, what can happen is that if you have contamination, it can really just eat up all of the sequencing signal um, and really take away from really a highly endogenous or, or a, a DNA sample itself. Um, so it's it's quite a robust and laborious process, but um, the end results are I think are are worth it. Okay, great. Thank you. May I ask another question, Katerina? Do you have time? Sorry. 
Yeah, as long as Raquel and Theodore have time, please go oh, ahead. Okay. Okay, so my next question is, you mentioned a little bit about there's no autosomal relative, relatedness. So you give uh, some kind of uh, explanation. Can you just uh, comment a little bit more? Because it's a, it's a long it's a long talk. I kept thinking back, I did have, can you please just a little of bit? Of course. Thank of you. Of course. Yeah, so when we're talking about autosomal relatedness, we're basically comparing the genomic the 23 or 20, genomic reads from our 23 chromosomes to determine, uh, you know, is this a parent offspring? Uh, we're doing this using what is, is a pairwise estimate of relatedness, um, as what through the read. This is a read program, um, as well as kind of uh, you do R1, R2, or R0, and King uh, robust uh, estimates of relatedness, as well, and so. Uh, but basically, unfortunately, we're because we only had 18 individuals with a high enough genomic coverage to make these estimations to be robust, um, we're only able to limit our estimations between those 18 individuals. And so when we're looking at mitochondrial DNA, you know, we, you, mitochondrial DNA are much, much smaller. It's only 16,000 base pairs. So it's much easier to get good coverage with the mitochondrial DNA to be able to hypothesize about this maternal relatedness. But what we really would have loved to just be able to verify it um, because either you can have the same mitochondrial DNA haplotype and be a parent offspring, or you could have that haplotype by chance and really share a much deeper ancestral connection. So if you have an L1 haplotype and the other person has an L1 haplotype, you could be direct parent offspring, or you could share that relationship, you know, 10, 13 generations back. So we were really hoping to get that autosomal uh, coverage for Walela, but unfortunately we just didn't have enough to be able to verify. Um, does that answer your question at all? Yes, yes. I, I missed the part because you said the only half of the sample you got some kind of good coverage. Thank you. That That's the part I was wondering. Okay, thank you. Yes, no more questions. Uh, and I, I might add that from the Y chromosome standpoint, what, what Raquel characterized as, as one of the interpretive um, challenges regarding direct ancestry or dist more distant relationships holds true for the Y chromosome, which is actually substantially larger than the mitochondrial genome. And with the lower coverage of the genomic sequencing, we don't necessarily have the same regions to compare for all the individuals who are male in the, in the population. So we still can find you know, haplogroup, Y chromosome haplogroup associations, but we have to be careful about how we interpret them and try to, as, as Raquel says, use autosomal data or other means of inferring relatedness to make sure we're, we're making the right interpretation. Yes, thank you so much. I got that too. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you have time for one more question. Noel joined the stage and I think that would be the last question if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Hi, Noel. Hi. Oh, <laughs> hi. Uh, thank you so much for your work. Um, I'm from the South, so I, I find this really interesting. Um, I was wondering with this grave site, there's, I mean, there's a lot of questions I had, but I'll just stick to one. Uh, with this grave site, and I know there was like so much migration that happened during that time frame between the Seminole and Gullah Wars. Do you think that you could be able to tie that kind of um, activity to these particular people, or, um, or is it just kind of like uh, people that you found that are in that location? I don't know if that makes some sort of clarity about what I'm asking, but do you think they were attached to it or were they local? 
I, well, let me, I think, Rekel, you can add something to this. I'll speak to the Gullah connection and, and uh, to, to respond in part to your question. You know, we've done work with Gullah communities uh, besides uh, those uh, in South Carolina, uh, living persons whose genomic profiles we can compare to those of the ancestors, and that may talk about the relative degree of connection between the ancestors and in, in living members of the, of the Gullah Geechee community, or at least in general genetic profiles. So that may give us some clue as to how coextensive that the ancestors were with the broader Gullah Geechee community or, or the community that was forming at that time. How they're related to that, um, the, the conflict that you're talking about or the, that interaction, I, I don't know that that's clear, but it's the work showing Kusa having uh, Amerindian ancestry, both on the maternal line and her autosomes, suggests that there were interactions between those communities who were often, um, you know, the native persons were the first to be enslaved in, in Charleston area and then uh, people of African descent. So being of, of somewhat lower social status and, and, and also being in the proximity may have led them to form partnerships or, you know, social relationships that were, you know, are reflected in uh, the genetic makeup of, of uh, African-Americans today, actually, among Gullah Geechee, but also those living at that time among among uh, the, the, the group that is represented by the ancestors. So I think we can say things of that kind, but how well we can pin or associate them our data with specific historical events, I, I'm not sure we can do that as of yet. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback off what Tad is saying, I think that's a really important historical point that you bring up, Noel. Unfortunately, because we don't have good documentation about who these individuals were in life, it's really difficult to tie them to any specific event. What we're having to do here is really just use all, you know, this, what we can from archaeology, from the DNA, from uh, what we can kind of piece together with maps about to try to infer about who these individuals were. But it's really hard when we don't have anything that directly ties them, you know, because really that's the gold there. That's the that's the, the bread and butter is, you know, being able to actually find direct documentation that could tie these individuals to a specific cultural group with history or to that period of time that you're referring to. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you so much um, for coming and, you know, presenting this really wonderful work um, for many reasons. It's wonderful work and um, and also to take the time to answer our questions. Um, it's, it was a really wonderful discussion and Again, I want to, you know, we are honored having you here. And then we want to congratulate you for this wonderful work. And uh, we will be following your work. I read in the chat that people are curious to learn more about the different, you know, ongoing research. Um, so I'm really um, glad that you came. We got to meet you. And uh, yeah, that we will have no more people interested in following your work. So thank you so much. And um, we wish you all the best for the future. Thank, thank you, you very much, Gabriela. Yeah, and thank you everyone for coming, asking questions. It makes um, these events so much more interesting. Um, and if you like discussions like this, follow the club. The next room will be next week and then 
we will talk about climate change and how heatwave um, change patterns in the soil moisture and how these patterns exactly work in different climate models. So thank you again, Raquel and Theodore and uh, everyone. And I hope to hear you all back soon one day. Thank you so much. And close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you.